0: Welcome back to the Occasional Cynicism Podcast. I know I've been absent for a while, and now that I do the weekly Sharp China Podcast, I've realized I like podcasting. So we'll be recording more cynicism episodes with guests I think are really interesting. Today, we are very lucky to have Tanya Branigan to talk about her excellent new book, Red Memory, The Afterlives of China's Cultural Revolution. As Tanya writes, it is impossible to understand China today without understanding the Cultural Revolution. That is something I agree with wholeheartedly, so much so that I even wrote my grad school thesis on Mao badges. I will also be running an excerpt from her book in the coming days, which is released in the UK already and will come out on May 9th in the United States. Tanya writes editorials for The Guardian and spent seven years as a China course reporting on, reporting on politics, the economy and social changes. She lives in London. Welcome, Tanya and congratulations on this great book
1: thank you so much for having me on
0: oh it's my pleasure it's great to see you it's been uh it's been a few years so and I appreciate it I, I got an advance read of the book last year and it really is uh it really is I think an important book and an important contribution um so can you just for the listeners can you just talk a bit about your background um so when you first first started working in China and what you did when you were there
1: So I came out to China in 2008, uh, just ahead of the Olympics, right at the start of what turned out to be an incredibly news-packed year, as you may recall. And I had never particularly wanted to be a foreign correspondent per se, but I just felt that China was the story of our time, really, uh, which has only proved to be truer, perhaps, as as time has gone on. And because it's a pretty small bureau, uh, there were never more than two of us max, and quite often there was one of me. I was covering absolutely everything. So from natural disasters through to politics, through to culture, business, uh, even very occasionally when I couldn't help it, sport. But I became particularly fascinated by by this topic and by China's more recent history, I suppose.
0: Well, one question on your time there. When you arrived, was it already past the uh, Wenchuan earthquake?
1: No. And in fact, that was one of the sort of Formative moments, I suppose, for me. Uh, reporting on it's fifteen the years
0: next in two weeks. It's crazy.
1: It's hard to believe it's gone past so fast. You know, I still think about those parents who lost kids. Yeah. That. Oh um, it's just terrible, it's, uh... terrible loss.
0: So, um, so, what led you to this book?
1: Well, you did actually. <laughs> as I say in as I say in the book, I probably wouldn't have written it without you. Um, so. I was obviously aware of the Cultural Revolution. I knew something about it. I would read a little around it. Um, But then it was just when I had that lunch with you and then over coffee, you started telling me about your father-in-law and about going to try to find his body, which I feel is probably a story actually at this point that you should tell rather than me.
0: Well, and just for for listeners... um the the i actually tried to have my wife be a special guest um but she didn't want to do it but tanya has interviewed her i'll put a link in into the story um i think we uh that you did that great story about the artist Xu Weixin, which maybe we can we can talk about too um but no sadly my you know like many chinese families um people had horrible experiences in the Cultural revolution Um my father-in-law uh killed himself in 1967 uh 1968 uh, when my wife was like a year old, a year and a half old. And, uh, it it just, it was a, he did it in Miyun outside of Beijing and, um, involved the train. And so he, we went with a family member, a, a, a brother of his, who was dying, who came back to say goodbye. And the family went out to this train embankment with this idea that maybe they could dig up the bones. And no one could figure out. Remember where it happened. One, um, someone went to the village and found an old lady who remembered. And the old lady's warning was, "Well, you know, just be careful because that that time that year, a lot of people jumped in front of trains. So just make sure you get the right bones." It was just like, "Oh my god!" Right? It was just like this. This collective. I mean, it was. It was just. It was quite chilling. But it was also like, "This is what every so many people of a certain age in China are sort of." bear these kinds of memories.
1: And so that, I think, was really what struck me. I mean, obviously, the sort of the cruelty and the loss and the fact that so many people are still living with loss now. And then, as you said, the fact that the villagers were so sort of matter of fact about it. I mean, I remember you sort of saying, you know, they were sympathetic in some ways, but just sort of uncomprehending of of your mission in another way. And... I think in many ways it was the fact that it was so commonplace, really, that stuck with me because there were so many horror stories you hear from the Cultural Revolution, horrific atrocities that have taken place. But here was a loss which, in a way, was sort of typical and right. that people were still living with the consequences of. And so I remember Carol saying to me, you know, that even though she was now a mother herself, she couldn't imagine what it would be like to have a father, that there was this kind of space in her life, and she couldn't imagine it being filled. And I think that really said so much about the way that people are still living with the consequences all these years on.
0: Yeah, and and it really, I think... um... And it's how people process lost and process the anger and the grief and so much, a lot of it is repressed. And we've seen cycles over the years of expressions or people trying to express, you know, we had a, the right after Xi Jinping came into power, I think one of the one of the earliest red guards sort of make an apology and, you know, it angered Xi Jinping. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where in many ways there was a periods where there's been an allowance or, or it's been allowed to sort of talk about it and then it gets pulled back and you can't really talk about it and i think we're now one of those periods but back to back to sort of where we were talking about it it was also really around that around the artist shu e xin right and what he was doing
1: that's right and so you suggested i go off to see him which was an extraordinary experience because he has this or had this studio full of around 100 paintings and they are just immense. I mean, its I think it's quite hard for people who haven't seen them to imagine them, isn't it? Because they're so daunting when you look yeah. at them. They're two no. and a half metres tall, they're monochrome.
0: And you, I, I have, you did a video for The Guardian. I'll put that in the, sh- the show notes for people. Um, we been there, we took our kids because my, my wife's dad and her, her grandparents were in it. So three, three of her family members are in it and they are, I mean, you went there. And then were you in Beijing for his show or you missed, you, were, you came after?
1: No, I came after. And of course, that was the only show that he had on the mainland. Of these works. Uh, we should probably explain.
0: Yes, go ahead. It's
1: a series of a hundred portraits of people who were caught up in the Cultural Revolution, and so some of them are obviously very famous figures, Mao himself, um, and others from the era, but many of them are also ordinary people um, who were just sort of swept up in it all. And there are people who are clearly recognized as being perpetrators, people who are clearly recognized as being victims, but of course, many people were both as well.
0: And it was interesting, he he found some of the more ordinary people because he put out a call on social media. For people to, if you're interested, you know, and that's actually one of, my, one of my wife's cousins sent in a bunch of information and he picked, he said, oh, this is an interesting story or this is a sad story. And he did it. So I actually, we did go to his show. It was at the Today, if people lived in Beijing, remember the Today Art Museum museum down in the, uh, the Pingua um, apartment complex down south of Guomauqiao. And we went opening day and it was packed and then it was like that's it like there was a little bit of coverage, and then it was gone and i i i don't think the show lasted very long it was it, but it was really it was really moving to be there because it was just packed with all these people who it wasn't like your typical sort of beijing art show back in the sort of go go years it was it was just it was a really remarkably moving and disturbing show
1: and i think that's what's so fascinating isn't it because it shows that there is that appetite for recalling, for looking back at this time. Um, you see it again with the Cultural Revolution Museum that was set up on the outskirts of Shanto, where uh, when it first opened, there was actually quite an influx of visitors and then there was obviously a bit of a panic and the ruling goes out, no more coverage in such Chinese right. media. Thank you very much. And the signposts are taken down. And so it sort of slows down to a trickle.
0: And you visited that museum, right?
1: Mm, yes. Well, as best I could, because by the time I got up there, it had been sort of hastily locked up. But it's a a very small museum with a very big sort of memorial garden uh, around it with sort of statues and uh, statues of victims and these very big sort of Walls with pictures uh, engraved on them, and so forth, uh, which have now been sort of covered up with propaganda posters and so forth. Uh,
0: and I, I mean, I I wonder what it looks like now because it does seem. I mean, it not does seem. It is true. I mean, Xi Jinping has very clearly has made it clear that you know while he he everything he's doing is sort of the opposite of a Cultural Revolution sort of mass movement, it's also very clear that that part of the the part of the PRC history, the, to, up the Mao era, including through cult, the through Cultural Revolution, there is no reopening of the sort of official verdict on the Cultural Revolution and Mao's mistakes. It's sort of look forward, move on, don't look back.
1: Absolutely, which obviously has always really been the party's um, belief. So even when the official verdict was drafted in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, in the aftermath of Mao's death, uh, Deng Xia... Uh, Dung says very clearly to the people drafting it, well, the point of this is to get people to unite and look ahead. In other words, it's not that kind of memorialisation where you say, let's draw up a verdict on this that the nation can keep looking back to and remembering and sort of using to make sure this doesn't happen again. It's about saying, let's draw a line under this and then we can all move on. So the party obviously hasn't changed that judgment that it was a catastrophe uh, that it was an error and so forth, but it definitely doesn't want people to dwell on it. And as we've seen over time, the subject's been more or less sensitive. And I would say history generally has become both more important and more sensitive since 2012.
0: Yes. no. And and I mean, what do you say? Because one of the things I hear um people talk about culture evolution is sort of like, well, well, it, sort of what it doesn't matter it's in the past and especially like why do you foreigners keep bringing up it doesn't matter we have to look forward I mean how you've you've talked to so many people you did this amazing book how how do you react to that
1: well I understand where that comes from and I think there is a sort of justified question uh in the eyes of some people which is Particularly when you sort of saw this um number of books following wild swans, it seemed as if there were a lot of these books coming out in the West. And I think people felt, what is this fascination with Maris trauma? when you're not willing to look at your own past right. and at the less savoury aspects of that, whether that be the opium wars or slavery or, or whatever. So I kind of understand where that comes from. And I was very conscious when I wrote the book that I didn't want it to be voyeuristic. I didn't want it to be about trying to find the worst things that had happened. Um it was much more for me about exploring what it means to people within China. And I suppose that would be my response, which is that a lot of Chinese people, uh, as your account of the exhibition being packed out shows, a lot of Chinese people do care about this, even if they're often reluctant to talk about it. And they are interested. They want to know or they want to be able to reflect upon this.
0: Yeah, and it, and it is also, I guess, with the passage of time, it's it's. You know the 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 next generation, the folks in their sort of thirties, forties, it, 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 it they don't even know in some ways, unless there's some passing down in inside families.
1: Absolutely, and in fa- fact, as you know, people are often so reluctant to speak about. it. I mean, when I started looking at this, I thought it was more about political repression and about how people aren't allowed to talk about the past except in certain ways. And obviously, that is a huge factor. But actually, it just became clear to me how much the personal trauma had affected people and how Mm. much of it was about people being unwilling or simply feeling unable to speak. And so I think for the people who do return to the past, and that's what sort of, is striking about the people in red memory. They're all people who chose to look at that history in one way or another or keep it alive in some way. Um, That's a really unusual thing. And I think it's not necessarily that they want to hark back to the past, but that they feel they have to, or that it's inescapable in some way. And so I suppose part of my sort of response to why do people keep talking about this? Is that our pasts matter and they define us. And in the same way that it's really important for us, you know, we're seeing people looking back upon slavery um, and the fact that, you know, particularly if you grow up in Britain, you grow up being sort of told it's all about the abolition of the slave trade and you don't really learn anything about how. Uh, important Britain was in creating this system of industrialized slavery. So in the same way that we need to go back and revisit our past if we are to sort of understand ourselves and who we are as a nation, I I think that has to be done. And the silence in China has been so profound that that's, I think many people there feel this urge to address it, even if they sometimes don't quite know why.
0: No, and it's, it's, I mean that that's the thing is there're just millions and millions of human tragedies right and so you can abstract it away into sort of this broader political question and history but but as I think you bring out in the book and as you just said I mean it's on an individual basis it's just just these so many human tragedies and so much pain and so much grief and so much anger and so few ways to express it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and over time I mean I've, I we see it on a daily basis because my mother-in-law lives with us and you just, you know, we've anyway, it's just, you just see how people have to, you have to survive and you have to deal with stuff and you have to internalize stuff. And it, it is, it is a remarkable, um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just that generation had so much trauma and, and yeah, you know, most, lots of people are fine and deal with it, but they're just, it's, it's just a, I don't know. It's why, like I said earlier, you know, I, when I was there in the early nineties, I, I got into sort of trying to understand the whole Malbatch phenomenon, because for me, it was like, it was just a sort of an entry point into trying to understand this, just collective insanity. Mm. And, and how does a society go f- to just become basically insane for several years?
1: But I think you put your finger on something important there as well, because you talk about it as a collective insanity. And that's, One of the issues, um, one of the sort of sinologists who's looked at this says, you know, it's a collective trauma and therefore you need some kind of collective resolution. And so even when people do address it as individuals, it's very hard to try and make any sense of it or come to terms with it without having any sort of broader social reckoning or even recognition, really, of what happened.
0: Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, clearly in the current trends, it's not going to happen. No, um, I mean, absolutely. A Xi, a, you know, the Xi Jinping, his family had their own traumas individually and as a family in the Cultural Revolution and around the Cultural Revolution. And they've, obviously, they've dealt with it and they're moving forward. And so it's, it's in some ways, you, you know, I, I can't imagine he's that sympathetic. Well, um, I
1: mean, you look at all the... All the sort of the leadership of China over recent years who had all gone through it, endured it in some way or another, you know, the party elders who had devoted their lives and sacrificed so much to the cause of the revolution only to be devoured by it. and then somehow coming to terms with that and believing that the answer had to be to maintain the system in some way or be right. in a radically transformed kind of way.
0: And that's one of the reasons why, I, you know, there is a, a, a kind of a cult of she underway, but I've been um, sceptical that, you know, there would be people say, oh, it'll be a new cult revolution. It, it I think everything, for example, that she's doing is the opposite. It's all about centralizing power. It's it's about controlling the masses, not unleashing or harnessing the masses, which is what Mao seems to have done.
1: Yes. And in fact, there's a fantastic um, Economist podcast on this very subject, Drum Tower, if anybody listens to it. Yes, it's
0: a great podcast.
1: um, Which has just dropped precisely about the differences. But one of the things that's so striking is that so many people within China have clearly seen parallels and see yes. echoes. Um, and I think what they see is firstly the sort of reinsertion of the party and towards these spheres from which it had retreated, like private life and even things like sort of culture and arts and so forth and, and business obviously. Um, but also this sort of arbitrariness in what's done. Uh And so if you look at the fact that some people sort of during COVID were talking about white guards, uh, Mm -hmm. all these people who are kind of enforcing the the COVID policies, obviously sort of harking back to the idea of red guards. Um, So people see these parallels. And as you say, they're obviously dramatic differences. And she is somebody who's so wedded to the idea of order and discipline. Um. But it's really striking how how many people have seen those parallels and I think it's very different uh it's partly very different because he's in charge of a very different nation mm-hmm. um but there are some striking echoes aren't there
0: well and, and it was interesting you know I think when when we were together um at the artist Shu Studio, you, you were interviewing him for that piece you did where you you talked to several family members or people who were the uh, uh, family members of people in the portraits. Shu, um, who's now in the US, um, I remember him talking about how he wanted to leave because he thought she was going to bring back the new Cultural Revolution. And it was very striking because it was very, it was sort of a, it was just a very dark. Um, at the time seemed to be sort of in a very extreme view but it was from somebody who obviously was very you know was very steeped in history and what had happened and I remember thinking like wow that's a that's a pretty scary contemplation but I think you know it hasn't happened as extreme as he suggested but to your point I think that especially under covid there were again this this just how the system can, mobilize and just effectively the realization that when the system decides you have no rights you have no rights
1: yes absolutely and the other thing of course is having a single figure with this sort of untrammeled power yes and clearly not again not the full extent of power that Mao had uh, but none or or indeed the full sort of veneration but nonetheless somebody who's there indefinitely mm-hmm Um, somebody who is definitely using party institutions and strengthening party institutions in many ways, but is also making them more and more his own, if you look at the personnel, for example.
0: Yes, and who's somebody who, you know, when he was the, um, uh, the vice president, was on the standing committee in the 17th Party Congress, he oversaw, one of the things he oversaw was party history. Um, I mean, he, you know, his story, too, his father got in trouble in the early 1960s because of a, of a book that was written about um, a, a political case. There was a biography that was Bei Zhong who, who was sort of Mao, like a really nasty, especially nasty guy, sort of told Mao, oh, this book is actually, it's a, it's a sort of anti, it's, it's criticizing you. And because it involved someone who would work with Xi Jinping's, father, uh, Xi, Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jinping's father ended up getting in trouble. And and so you sort of see like like personally he understands how history can be used and weaponized, yeah. and and how it's how important it is to control it. And if it's going to be used and weaponized, you want to be the person who's doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That control of the narrative. I mean, it's it's obviously got a very long history uh, in within China yes. of history being a sort of a moral or political force uh, as much as a or more than a record. Um, but and we see that sort of being amped up under the party over time. But there's no doubt that under Xi, it's kind of really taken yeah. on.
0: Yeah. No. And renewed was- strength. And in some ways, he may only be getting started. So, well, back to your book. Um, Just what's your favorite part of the book, if you have one? I mean, I know maybe I'm sure you love the whole book, but is there anything that really sort of stands out or stood out for you?
1: I don't think any author loves the whole (laughs) of (laughs) it. You you go back and think, why did I put that full stop there? Um, (laughs) I think talking to the psychotherapists, for me, was really interesting and maybe that's not one um, that sort of many readers will come away with but I think particularly having witnessed or having spoken to people at such length about the trauma that they had been through and about the impact it had had upon them it was also really important to remember that there is hope um, that people did survive this and that they came through and were able, as deeply scarred as they were, people did manage to come through and show love to their children or sort of take pleasure in things. I mean, Wang Xilin, who's the composer I interview, is just this kind of extraordinary force of nature. You know, I've never met anyone like him really in terms of just having this kind of determination to seize life that clearly comes from his experiences And so as scarring and as grim as many of those experiences were, I felt it was really important to remember that humans are resilient and they find strength in ways that we wouldn't anticipate, but also that I guess we're all vulnerable uh, and the importance of trying to understand people rather than to sit in judgment upon them.
0: Well, in, in terms of the in terms of the sort of the the psycho psychiatrists, I mean, how China has a vast shortage of mental health professionals, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and I mean, how there isn't any sort of special training for this sort of historical trauma? Is there? How, how do these psych, psych, like how do the psycho psychiatrists sort of know what to do or how to deal with it?
1: So they've definitely looked to examples elsewhere. I mean, for example, the work that's been done on transgenerational trauma very much came out of the uh, experiences of people, I think primarily in Israel and the US, treating the children of Holocaust survivors, for example. Um, So they were certainly kind of looking overseas. There are people from Europe who've worked with psychotherapists there because it's such a kind of nascent uh, discipline anyway Mm. within China and I think what was sort of interesting to me as well was the fact that in some ways you'd think it was quite safe territory because it's taking this huge social trauma and it's confining it within a treatment room Uh, it turns it in a sense into one person's problems or it, it treats it as one person's problem. So you could think that from the authorities' point of view, that might be quite welcome in some ways. Uh, but of course, it also means speaking about what happened. And that's certainly why a lot of people find it too threatening to contemplate as potential patients. But I think that's also why it's been a very sensitive area as well. And, and why Chinese psych- psychotherapists haven't really spoken about it publicly. I mean, the people I spoke to didn't want to be identified and that's quite right. telling, isn't it?
0: Right. Um, I mean, it, yeah, obviously there's patient confidentiality, but but again, I think to your point, there's also a political overlay too. Mm. Um, so not, I mean, th- this book is not at all depressing. It's an incredibly difficult topic, but actually I found it to be um, in many ways inspiring. Because there are some awful stories, but they are also you, like you said earlier, you f- you see how people can survive.
1: Yes, and I didn't. You don't want to kind of tack a, a a false happy ending, I suppose, onto this. So you really have to remember that a lot of people came away scarred and did not recover. Um, right. And I talk in the psychotherapy chapter. You know, the woman who says to me, "Well." for us the cultural revolution only ended last April because that's when my father died and you know, his his brain had basically stopped in 1966. He had a, had a nervous breakdown after the Red Guards persecuted him and he never recovered. So I didn't want to create too rosy a vision, but I did want to kind of reflect the complexity and the hope that exists. Yeah, it's... And the fact, you know, I, I sort of, Talk about the the people who were in sort of Red Guard factions and turned upon each other and were trying to kill each other. And yet they have this sort of strange relationship now, these guys I was talking to, where I don't think they necessarily like each other particularly. But they've kind of found a way to live with each other and coexist and even kind of take care of the ultra zealous, unrepentant ultra maoist guy you know who still thinks that um that the main problem with the cultural revolution is probably really that it it didn't um it didn't go it far enough it or... didn't go or yes it didn't go on for long enough or it didn't succeed but you know they've managed to kind of find a way to live with him and they sort of give him cash and help support him and i just think there is hope to be found there
0: no it is fascinating when i in the early 90s when i had a job in beijing i actually i, I was working as a translator at, at this um i i at this uh now defunct, called the Chinese Literature Press. Um, and this was 91 to 92. And then I, I learned that actually, like you said, there were colleagues who were, I mean, we we're only 15 at that point. It was only, it's crazy, it was only 15 plus years since the end of the Cultural Revolution. And there were colleagues who had been on either side, you know, persecuted or persecutors. And you know, you could tell there was tension there, but it was like they had to deal with each other in their, in their little, in their little work unit. And it was, it was just, I, I don't know. I mean, again, fifth, that, that was 15 years out of the culture. It was very different. Now we're much further along in history. And I guess, I mean, part of it I'm, I'm assuming is, you know, the party will just assume that they just effectively, as people age out and die off, that the memories will just fade away. And then it's all, it's all about moving forward. And, and so I wonder in some ways, if your book isn't, I mean, it's not going to be picked up by a, published in the PRC, I assume. Um, I, I'm curious how they would view your book.
1: Well, I don't imagine it could be printed in the PRC, but also some of those I spoke to didn't want it didn't want... to be published there, which I completely understand. So that so was, will
0: you um, Will you try and directed. get it published in Taiwan? I mean, in the, old, in the old days, you probably could have published it in Hong Kong, but that obviously I don't think would happen now.
1: I sort of felt in the interests of being true to the agreement, the spirit of the agreement, I'd made with people that I didn't want to see it published in Chinese. Chinese. And obviously, you know, I said to them, I can't completely rule out somebody finding bits of it and choosing to translate bits of it on the internet, because that can happen. Um, but I won't be party to it being translated.
0: That makes sense. Um, so I guess, you know, (laughs) we've sort of talked about it, but I, I have, you know, I have some questions. I mean, one really the the other question is what do you think like if the the memories fade away inside china what is that does that really matter like if you're i mean is or or is it actually something that the party they just the next generation they move on and you know that the top guys remember it and so they seem to be trying to prevent some of the worst excesses is 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 there is there a way of approaching it actually going to work or is it is it the right way to deal with all this trauma
1: i think that's such a good question and i can understand not just from a political survival point of view but also from a concern for sort of chinese society point of view why the authorities are so reluctant for this to be addressed precisely because the issues are so raw and so painful and because people were turning on upon their workmates and so on. And I think their fear um, was partly how the hell do you manage this? If people start saying you killed my father, right? Where the hell do you go from there? Um, So, and it was so clear, sort of talking to people, how rancorous it remains, even sort of among people who I had broadly thought of as being what you might sort of call on the same side in terms of them being people who want to remember the cultural revolution because they think it was a time where things went dreadfully wrong. and We need to kind of learn from that. Even between them, there was so much sort of bitterness and rancor at times about what you should remember and how you should remember and who you should hold responsible and how much blame you attach to individuals and so forth um so i think that was one real concern but i don't think you can just bury it because i think these things just fester and make themselves felt in really dangerous ways certainly i talked a bit earlier about transgenerational trauma uh, so there's a lot of evidence as i said originally sort of coming from the families of holocaust victims but it's it's been well established Um, across a range of countries of the effects of trauma being passed down between generations, even or perhaps especially where people aren't speaking about what happened. Um, And so the psychological effects upon the children and grandchildren, I think really are significant. And you do just think about how much pain a huge number of people in China are still walking around with and that pain doesn't disappear when that generation dies, although it may ebb to some degree. And I also do think because the cultural revolution is, I, I don't think the cultural revolution could happen again in that way, in that form, certainly. But I think that, as I said, we need to look back at our histories to understand who we are as people and also to see how easily humans can go astray and in that yeah. sense it's not it's not just a story for china uh, although it could only have happened in that way within that particular sort of time and place but it is something that has a sort of a wider resonance so i don't think you can Just bury it. And I think the final thing, actually, which is sort of odd, is that for a long time, the party has also sort of relied on this unspoken memory of the Cultural Revolution to essentially send this message of either we keep very tight control of all of you, or you're going to have to live with this chaos and devastation in which anything could happen. Right. And that has been very effective. Because right. a lot of people do remember the Cultural Revolution, but well, as you said, it's a diminishing um asset for them in that sense because they don't want to talk about it directly and go into too much detail. Book, and because the people who actually remember it uh, are dying. So for younger people, it really doesn't have the same impact.
0: No, and of course the the, the the this sort of the messaging around otherwise it's chaos leaves out that otherwise it's chaos like it was chaos caused by Mao yes and and I mean that is the yeah I mean that that's the again in the 80s especially and in, you know there's sort of maybe some more discussions about Mao and his role in history and now of course it's it's I mean again she made very clear soon after he became general secretary and sort of there were these sort of the pre-reformant opening sort of the 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 founding of the prc and the early years of the prc and then there was reform and opening and you know neither one of those basically were you know you can't, you can't negate either one and then you know since then right he's added effectively this third era this new era right so we're into the third era of the prc history and it's all about looking forward and sort of the 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 previous eras or sort of eras have their historical um uh What's the right word? They they sort of they have their historical judgments in place, and so those aren't going to be overturned. And so anything that would open up the Cultural Revolution in any way now, it, it just it's it's a it's a massive political problem, I think, for Xi. And so I just don't think. I, I think we're we're going to see like your book is really important, but I I think ultimately we're not going to see any sort of reopening of the Cultural Revolution in any and and she's only you know, we just you look at his age. I mean, he's. Uh, he's what's going to turn 70 this year. He could be with us for a long time. And so by the time he fades from the scene, most likely most of the people who have a direct experience of the cultural revolution will also have faded from the scene.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and it is, you know, it is interesting too, like how, you know, the, the the formative experiences and like, see what they, how they inform his approach to governing and, and, and it just, it, risk-taking and decision-making and we may never know right and you can certainly speculate but i mean one of the one of the other i think things that were quite damaging were that whole generation who lost their education
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right i mean look at look at she he he went he he basically did barely even got a high school education right
1: Well, and this is, I mean, this is one of the things that's fascinating to me, which is that that is the one part of the Cultural Revolution that the authorities are willing to talk about, and even to celebrate, because they managed to detach it entirely from its political context. So when they talk about these 17 million people who were sort of sent off
0: to the countryside,
1: yeah, exactly, um, thinking that they were going there forever, they're not portraying that as being part of the Cultural Revolution or, you know, part of Mao's many sort of terrible failings of his people. It's become this sort of story of comradeship, honest toil. This is where Xi Jinping learned to be a man of the people. He grew up into manhood. Uh, And, you know, all of those things are very appealing, particularly in an age where we were seeing these sort of constant cases of sort of hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, uh being sort of racked up by high-ranking party officials to right. be able to contrast it with here's Xi Jinping. He went down to the countryside, he struggled, he knows what it is to labor. All he of those messages are very opponent.
0: He, yeah, but, he's a man of the people. No, and, and, hmm. and it really is um like you said, they've 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 sort of figured out how to sort of separate out the trauma and and actually turn it into this this positive, uh, constructive formative experience. And I think, you know, but to be honest, I think some people in retrospect do believe it was.
1: Well, that's what's fascinating when you talk to them. And in a way, I think that's probably where it came from, from the party, that there was already this sort of grassroots nostalgia movement among the sent down youth, uh, which Guo Bin Yang has written about brilliantly where people started meeting up going to exhibitions and there's this sort of fascination with that time and it's a very bittersweet thing mm-hmm. um I, I sort of draw a comparison with the Waltons and the way that people sort of have this slightly romantic impression of you know depression era America well, everybody was terribly poor but they all loved each other and worked hard you know um there is a kind of nostalgia for that time, for a sense of meaning and belief and purity. And so that was kind of a very potent thing that was already there to tap into, I think.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, um, I don't know, this is why your book is just, it's, a, it's an important contribution to trying to help sort of understand and because it does, I mean, again, sort of to the question I asked earlier that other people have raised sort of why should we care? It, it It isn't just about trauma, but it's also about it. It has just been so formative for the people running China now and trying to understand what how this affected them really does have real implications for how they see the world and how they see ordering China.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, right across the spectrum as well, if you talk to sort of business people so often they'll say, oh, it was my years as a sent down youth that were this kind of transformative moment that right. made me realize how hard I would have to struggle uh, to get there and so forth. So in so many ways, it shaped the culture, it shaped the politics, it shaped the economy.
0: Now, and I wonder, you know, there, there certainly, it was, it was a shorter period, but I, I wonder if the sort of the COVID, especially the last 2022 with Dynamics Zero COVID and just how how hard it was for so many people and so many businesses, I wonder if you know, I think we're already sort of going to see this talk about, oh, this was a really formative year, this, you know, we survived and then therefore we're able to do, you know, we understand risk and we understand how to um, sort of manage through really, really difficult periods, even though I don't think it was, um, I mean, it was obviously different than Cultural Revolution, but it was also in certain places clearly very traumatic for people.
1: Yes, I mean, I I feel... I think even sort of looking around the uk it feels like people are only really starting to realize the impact that the pandemic had upon them um how much it's shaped individuals how much it's shaped communities politics that sense that sort of several people said to me sort of seeing friends or relatives kind of disappear down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories during the pandemic because they were suddenly Sort of locked up at home with nothing else to sort of look at. Yes, and the thing that's sort of striking to me actually is how little we're talking all about all of that, and it does make me think when terrible things happen, people kind of want to forget them and move on.
0: Move on, and it's also early, right? I mean, people. I mean, and and so, so well, I I mean, thank you for writing the book. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to say to the audience, or you know, anything else I should have asked you?
1: No, I mean. In many ways, I think you probably know this subject as well, if not better no, than no, no, no. me, because you're, you know, you've you've obviously sort of lived with it at, at a family level as well. Um and I just hope I think that people I mean, it's clearly about China, as I say, and about how you can't understand China unless you understand this period. But I would also hope that people sort of didn't see it as being a book about this kind of distant place that has nothing to do with them because it for me it raised so many questions the parallels with our own society in terms of the way that we choose to address our own history and particularly looking at what's happened with politics in the UK and especially in the US. um, Mm -hmm. Trump is clearly in some ways a more a much more Maoist figure you might argue than she is in terms of his sort of reveling uh, in chaos and disorder. And particularly in this incitement of hatred, you know, Adam Serwer talks about the cruelty being the purpose in, in the use of hatred and division for political purposes.
0: So one question, if you're willing to, uh, to, to entertain it would be, um, about sort of politics in the West you you hear a lot of sort of, you know, this called cancel culture, or whatever, and people say, oh, it's just like the culture revolution. How, how do you react when you hear someone compare like sort of people getting canceled on Twitter or, you know, just saying, how do you, when someone says, oh, that's like the Chinese culture revolution, how, how do you, what, what do you think when you hear that?
1: I think it just speaks to how fundamentally people misunderstand the Cultural Revolution in the West. Uh, they either regard it as a sort of a, a punchline or something a bit kitsch, uh, or they regard it as young people being very left-wing and getting carried away, essentially. And that's really not what the Cultural Revolution right. is. The Cultural Revolution is about a very powerful man exploiting and fermenting public sentiment for his own ends
0: and violent and public violence. Indeed,
1: yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's about the use of power. And I just think that's so fundamentally distinct from any of the kind of discussions that are going on now. It just speaks to a really basic misunderstanding of what we're looking at.
0: Well, good, we agree. I, I, I have a, I've tried not to engage, but it drives me nuts because I find it to be incredibly uh, facile and, and an incredibly shallow uh, that betrays a real lack of understanding and appreciation for the horrors and the trauma of the Cultural Revolution in China. Yeah, absolutely. So, how do we end on a happy note? Um, what's a, what's a happy takeaway for the from your book?
1: Oh dear, that's tricky. <laughs> I think it, unfortunately, because my day job as well involves invo- writing on foreign policy, I do spend a lot more time looking at the, uh, the darker sides of things. Well, as I said, I do think people have, in many ways, managed to move forward. I think there is a wealth of extraordinary and thoughtful work out there on the era. I mean, particularly done by Chinese scholars. Uh, officially or unofficially Mm -hmm. um, within China and then especially outside it uh, as it's become more difficult to work there. And I think there's such sort of richness there in terms of understanding the era better, but also uh, in learning, as I said, about human nature more generally and those things we can take away. So there's that. Um, And then there is just the fact that people live through horrors and they manage to go on and lead meaningful and loving lives against all the odds, even if they've been deeply scarred as well sometimes. Incidentally.
0: No, sorry, sorry. good. No, go
1: ahead. I was just going to say, incidentally, if anybody sort of has the chance to go and look up Wang Xilin's work uh, on YouTube, there's a sort of a bunch of his music out there. So he's the composer who nearly died in the Cultural Revolution, but as I said, is this octogenarian with an incredible. Appetite for life, um, still working assiduously, living in Germany now, and he would love people to hear his music. So, I think if you want a sort of a blast of life, in contrast to all the horror that we've been talking about, then okay, please go and listen well, to him. Well,
0: and I'll we'll put we'll put some links in the um in the show notes. No, thank you. That's great. And I mean the thing I I, I would just add is is and why again I think your book is so important is it you know as Especially from the U.S. perspective, U.S.-China relations worsened. There's just just lots of othering on both sides, and one of the things is, it's we're all human, and so much of the pain and suffering and experiences, I mean, the, the reactions are human, and it's a reminder that that people, even as they go through different experiences, different cultures, there's still some real. I mean, that's we're all people. Yeah. And 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 so in many ways, your your book is important in a way that. Again, it's so easy to abstract abstract away what's going on in sort of US-China or Chinese politics. You help humanize it in a way that I think is important for everyone to understand sort of that in many ways we're all the same.
1: Thank you. I did want this be – I wanted this to be a book that was about us rather than them. So that's Great. really good to hear.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Tanya. I, I really – I can't recommend uh, Tanya's book, Red Memory, enough. Like like I said, uh, I will also be running an excerpt on c- cynicism from, from one of her chapters. And uh, thank you all for listening. And thank you, Tanya, for taking the time.
1: Thank you.